John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Here then, church, the word of the Lord. In that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My shepherd hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And this is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you truly for this word. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has purchased our redemption, who is our great shepherd, and laid his life down for us, that we might know you, we might be reconciled to you, and have the comfort of knowing that he holds us in his hand and that we have eternal life. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us this morning. We ask for those who are sick that you would heal their bodies. For those who are discouraged or perhaps lonely, Lord, we pray that you would comfort them. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling. We think especially of Mike Gare and his boys as they go down to Baja this week. Lord, we pray for their safety. And God, we think of the creatures as well as they're getting prepared for uh, going back overseas to Senegal. Lord, we pray that you would be in all of these things, that you would be giving your people um, the, the strength to carry on and do the things that you call them to do. We ask that you would help us to do that, Lord. All the work that you've put before us every single week, every single day, whether it's mothers in the home caring for their children, fathers at work, that you would help us to do the work you've given to us to your glory and for your name and for the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all of this this morning. Amen. Well, we continue today in John's gospel as he records for us interactions that Jesus had with these Jews in Jerusalem during the various Jewish feasts and festivals. And the context of this passage we just read is a follow-up to what Jesus had previously taught about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So John frames this interaction with the Jews in Jerusalem by telling us that it happened at the time of the Feast of Dedication. And unlike the Feast of Booze and the Passover, 
This celebration wasn't born out of an Old Testament event where God had saved his people. It was rather a celebration that commemorated a victory of the Jewish people to take back Jerusalem from Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC. And so every year in December, the Jews would would come together in Jerusalem and celebrate this event, and it's the event that we, we know today as Hanukkah. So then here we have Jesus in Jerusalem again for a Jewish feast that gave a shared sense of identity to the people, to to the Jews, and a shared sense of longing for God's further action on their behalf to bring about his kingdom and to save them, which meant for many of them salvation from their overlords, the Romans. So you can imagine then that the question of whether or not Jesus was the Messiah became ever more relevant um, in a feast, during a feast like this one. So on the one hand, you have those who are curious, they're genuinely curious and open to the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah. And on the other hand, you have the religious rulers who are getting very concerned about the things that Jesus has been saying, the things that he's been doing, and what impact it might have on them and their place, pretty precarious place, as rulers of the people underneath the authority of, of the Romans. It seems most of them had made up their minds that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah, Um, But that didn't mean that he couldn't cause a whole lot of trouble. And these Jews, likely those who were in the place of authority that did not believe him, ask him this question, verse 24, if you are the Christ, that is, if you are the Messiah, Christ means Messiah, if you are the Messiah, then tell us plainly. Now we need to keep in mind that Jesus knew that their view of the Messiah was skewed. They didn't have any concept of a Messiah who would come and save his people via his own suffering and death. Nor did they have any notion of the the Messiah that they were looking forward to being more than just a man. So there's good reason why, keep that in mind, that's that's good reason why Jesus didn't go into Jerusalem during uh, feast days going around just saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm here. Because of what he understood, that they thought of the Messiah, what that meant to them. But if you look at his answer to to their question, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, if you look at his answer, it's clear that he is claiming to be the Messiah and more. Because by the end of his, um, by the end of his, his reply to their question, their concern goes from this man is claiming to be the Messiah and he might make trouble to this man deserves to die on the spot right now because being a man, he makes himself God. Look at verse uh, 31. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So the question of the hour was, is this man, Jesus, speaking the truth? Is he the son of God, worthy of absolute allegiance and worship? Or is he a detestable liar? Is he a fake Messiah? Is he perhaps an audacious blasphemer? Now, fake Messiah is one thing, but blasphemer is another. So what I want to do here is to help us see what it was about what Jesus says, how Jesus responds to that initial question, that gets them to the point of picking up stones to stone him as a blasphemer. And then once we get there, we're going to look at Jesus' response to their charge of blasphemy. 
So first, let's look at verses 24 through 28. What is Jesus claiming here? So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now I talked about some of what Jesus says here last week. But this morning I want us to think about it maybe from a different perspective or a different angle. And that would be, what is Jesus claiming about his own authority when he says these things? He says essentially that they ought to know the answer to their question, whether or not he's the Christ, because he has told them plainly that, but they just don't believe. And the evidence that he is the Messiah is in the works that he's done in his father's name, works like healing the blind and making the lame to walk. But they didn't believe, Jesus says, because they weren't among his sheep, or as the um, older ESV translation says, they were not a part of his flock. Those, on the other hand, who are his sheep, they're the ones who hear his voice, he knows them, and they follow him, and he gives them eternal life. Now, there it is. He says he gives them eternal life. It's at this point where Jesus goes too far in their minds. What he's claiming here goes beyond the authority that even the Messiah ought to claim. For one, he speaks of himself as the shepherd of the sheep. And he calls those sheep his sheep. And already, already when he says that, he is putting himself in the place of God because God's people belonged to who? God's people belonged to God, not to any man. And think about what Jesus says he does with those sheep. So he calls them my sheep, and then what, is, what does he say he does for them? He says he gives them eternal life. Here's a man, and he's saying, I give them eternal life. Now, who has that power? Who has the power to give men eternal life? Who has the authority to, to hand out eternal life? As if they have it in their own hands, as if they own eternal life, as if they can give it to people. Well, the answer was God. And the answer is God and God alone. So while Jesus did affirm his identity as the Messiah, and he is affirming his identity as the Messiah here, his claims about himself go far beyond what they expect of the Messiah. He's putting himself in the place of God when he calls those who believe in him his sheep, and he is claiming the authority that only God has, and the kind of authority that God never delegates, the power to give eternal life. Now, he isn't saying, he's not just saying, I'm here to proclaim God's word to God's people so that they might be saved. He's saying, I'm the one who saves. I'm the son sent from the father to give the sheep, my sheep, eternal life. So that's the first claim that we need to see. And, and the second is like it. And that is that Christ Jesus claims the ability to keep his sheep in his hand so that they will never be separated from him and they will never perish. Look at verse 27 again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Well, it follows that if Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to his own people, then he also has the ability to keep them. 
And this clarifies that Jesus isn't just saying, I give them eternal life by leading them to God, who then ensures their souls will not be damned in the end. No, he's saying that he saves his people by granting them eternal life, and those who know him can be confident their souls will never perish. They will reach, the, in the end, they will experience that eternal life. They will, their souls will come to experience eternal life. Why? Because not only does he give them eternal life, he ensures them that they will, they will reach the end. They will have it. He holds them in his hand. And being in his hand means that they're in the Father's hand. Because those who belong to him belong to his Father. Because the Father's sheep are his sheep. And so if they're in his hand, they're in the Father's hand. And those he saves are those whom the Father saves. Now just think about what Jesus is claiming here as you listen to the words of Psalm 95. A psalm that they would, the Jews in Jerusalem would have um, been very familiar with. Listen to what the psalm says. Psalm 95, starting in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, our God, our creator. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of what? Of his hand. Now, who is the great shepherd of the sheep here? It's God. And to whom do the sheep belong? Well, to God. And what is the sheep's security? What enables the sheep to rest securely at night? Knowing that they are the sheep of God's hand. In other words, that they reside in the care and protection and the sovereignty of their God. Now, ironically, the psalm goes on to warn God's people of hardening their hearts towards their shepherd. If you keep reading, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa." In the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways, and therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this, is, this is actually what's happening in our passage. The voice of the Lord is calling out, but the people's hearts are hard. God was speaking through his son, but these Jewish leaders weren't listening. And Jesus says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but though they had seen his work, right? Though they had seen God's work in and through the man, Jesus Christ, they still put him to the test. They still didn't believe him. And John writes his gospel so that his readers might not do what the religious leaders did with Jesus. By recording Jesus' words here, John is showing his readers that Jesus is the one and only Savior. Remember how John started his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And that man, Jesus Christ, the Word in flesh, was and is man's only hope of salvation. Only as the eternal Son of God can he give eternal life. Only as true God in flesh can he hold us so that we never are lost and separated from his divine love? Our salvation depends upon the God-man, you see, Jesus Christ. If he were a mere man, he would not have the authority to give his sheep eternal life. Only as the Son of God can he do so. And only as the Son can he say, none can snatch them out of my hand. 
and none can snatch them out of my father's hand, which was to say, to be in my hand is to be in my father's hand. And think on this glorious truth, O Christian friends, the wonderful assurance that Jesus gives to all his sheep, to all who hear his voice and believe on him, that he holds us in his hand, that we might never be snatched away, that our souls are ultimately in his sovereign grip, we might say. Many of you parents have had that experience of crossing the street with your three or four-year-old holding on to their hands as you did. And think about this, what ensured their security as you did that? Well, it wasn't how tightly they were holding on to you, but it was your grip on them. You knew their weakness, right? You knew their ignorance of of the danger of just letting go and, and running across the street themselves. You knew how easily they would be distracted and lose their grip. So what did you do? You held on to them. So that whatever they did, they weren't going anywhere. They were with you. And this is what our Savior is saying. He does. Our security rests upon Jesus and upon his hold on us and not our hold on him. And yeah, yep, Scripture calls us to persevere in the faith, to continue to hold on to Christ. But even that, what we see in Scripture is even that is by the sustaining grace of our Savior who's holding on to us and not letting us go. You remember back in chapter 6, Jesus speaks of this matter as well. John 6, 37. Some of you remember when we went through this not too long ago. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about people. He's talking about the elect, those who believe in Jesus Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so he can say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus Christ has the authority to save all his sheep, all who believe in him, and he has the ability to keep them. It's a tremendous claim and a tremendous promise and yet one that can only be made by God. Which brings us to the claim that Jesus makes in verse 30. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now when Jesus says this, he isn't saying that he is the Father. No, he's identifying himself, he identifies himself as the Son and speaks of the Father, God the Father, as his Father. Yet, he is identifying himself with God the Father in such a way that no man can. He's speaking of a whole and perfect unity in will and action and mission with the Father, which flowed from his sharing in the divine nature with the Father. So in light of what he had already said about himself and in light of this statement, the Jews rightly understood Jesus to be making himself equal with God. Or as they say to him here, you being a man, make yourself God. And so right there in that moment, these Jews make an abrupt judgment They charge Jesus with blasphemy and they pick up stones to carry out the sentence of death upon him. But what they didn't consider was the possibility that the Son of God was indeed among them. 
speaking to them and doing the works of God, which verified all the claims that he made. And this is the point that Jesus continues to press. In fact, three times in the passage, Jesus points to the miracles he had done among them, miracles among them, as signs that verify his identity as the Son of God. Now, many have struggled with understanding Christ's answer to their charge of blasphemy, so I want to do my best this morning to explain the point that he makes. But before we get into his response, his reply to their charge, we should note what he doesn't say. Uh, we should make note of what he doesn't say, okay? What does Jesus not say? Well, he doesn't say, when they charge him with blasphemy, he doesn't say, well, hold on a second. You've misunderstood me. I'm just a prophet of God, or I'm just a good teacher, or I'm just a man who has submitted himself to God's will, and that's all that I'm trying to say when I said I and the Father are one. No, he actually affirms again his identity in union with God the Father by saying in verse 38 that the works he has done ought to lead them to, if you have it, look at it, the works he has done, he says, ought to lead them to believing, knowing, and understanding that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. So he is in no, um, no part of his answer lessening his claim to be the divine Son of God. So then, what, what, is, what is Jesus saying, especially in verses 34 through 36? Let's take a look. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated or set apart, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, this isn't an argument to give further evidence of his deity. It's rather a rebuke of their contention with him referring to himself as the Son of God. They're stumbling over his self-identification as the divine Son. And so he rebukes them by reasoning from lesser to greater. And that's important. He's, he's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He's not saying, men in the past were called gods, so as a man, I can call myself a god too, because I'm just a man. He's saying that if that were the case for these individuals, then how much more so is it proper for the one who was set apart by God the Father and sent from God the Father to speak of himself in this way? So you, who is Jesus referring to here when he says that the law called them gods? They're called gods in the law. Well, we generally think of that word, we hear that word law, we think of either the law that was given by, um, to God uh, through Moses to the people, or maybe we think of the Ten Commandments, or, or maybe we even think of the first five books of the Old Testament. But it actually can be used in a different sense. It can be used to refer to all of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's how Jesus is using it here. Because the scripture that he's referring to is Psalm 82. Let's take a look at that Psalm. Psalm 82. And this Psalm says this. God takes his position in his assembly. He judges in the midst of the gods, or some translations might say rulers there. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, 
you are gods, and you are all sons, er, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And then the psalmist says, Arise, God, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. So this psalm is a divine indictment. The ones who are called gods or the sons of the Most High are those who are judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked. And that gives us a clue as to who these individuals were. They were men who exercised authority to judge or lead the people of Israel as representatives of the one true God who was the ultimate judge and the ultimate ruler. So in this way, they could be called gods or sons of the Most High because they would declare men innocent or guilty. They would deal out punishments, including death. And in this way, they acted as gods because their judgments were likened unto the judgment of God. Just as they were kings with a little k, there were judges with a little j, and gods with a little g. God is the king of kings. He's the judge of all judges. He's the Lord of all lords, right? And so in this way, they're spoken of as gods because their judgments, were, they, they had the authority to judge, and their judgments were likened unto the judgment of God. They were actually to reflect the judgment of God. They had God-like authority among men. But here in this psalm, we see God's warning that despite their position of power, his judgment is on them for their failure to judge justly and to save the innocent from the wicked. So then, we come back to Jesus' defense. He's saying to them, if God's word came to these men by calling them gods, who were finite rulers and judges on earth, then how can you call it blasphemy when the one whom the Father has set apart and sent into this world calls himself the Son of God? How much more so could I use that title, Son of God? And if you don't believe me, he goes on to say about who I am, that I've been set apart and sent from the Father, then look at the works that I'm doing. If you can't believe on account of my word, then believe on account of these things that I do that testify to the truth, that I and the Father are one, that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Now, the ironic thing is, you see, that these men charged Jesus with blasphemy, saying that he was a man who made himself to be God, but the truth was that he was the divine Son of God who made himself to be a man so that he might lay down his life for the sake of men and bring them to God. And the irony goes even deeper because these religious leaders were ready to come condemn Jesus to death for speaking the truth. They were, you see, like the gods of Psalm 82, the judges who were failing to judge in righteousness and truth, and because of that, God's judgment was on them. And in the end, when, as the psalm foretells, God arises and judges the earth. They will see the face of the one whom they judged and they condemned as a blasphemer. They will see him, his face, and they will see him as their judge, as the judge, the possessor of all the nations. Arise, God, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. And that God was standing right in front of them in the form, in the flesh of a man. Well, John ends this section by telling us that though they sought to arrest him, he escaped their hands and left Jerusalem. He went back across the Jordan. And many came to him testifying that all John the Baptist said about him was true. And we are told many believed in him there. 
And on this encouraging note, we end today that though many of the Jews in Jerusalem, many of the leaders refused to listen to Jesus Christ, they would not be persuaded even by his miracles. That was not the case for all. There were many who heard Jesus and believed in him. And many even who through the testimony of John the Baptist came to believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, as the divine Son of God come in flesh. And it remains so today that some who, when they hear of Christ, they refuse to listen to his words and consider his works, especially his resurrection that testifies of him being the Son of God in flesh. But there are others who hear the word of Christ. They hear the word of Christ, and in the word of Christ, they hear the voice of their shepherd, and they believe in him, and they follow after him, and he gives them eternal life, and they are his forever. And this is our hope, and this is the message that we have been entrusted with, to tell the world. And what can we expect? Well, we can expect that the message of Christ will be a fragrance of life to some and a stench of death to others. And so we are to strive faithfully to send that message out, to speak the word of truth to people, to tell them who Christ is, and then trust God to do the work in people's hearts that they might receive him by faith and come to their shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you that Jesus Christ has indeed come and that he is our shepherd, Lord. We thank you that we can be assured of the eternal life that he's been he's given to us and that he holds us in his hands. And Lord, I do pray that if there are, there are any here today who have rejected the authority of Christ in their life, they have refused to consider his works and his words, that you would do a work in their heart today, Lord, maybe even from this word, from, from reading uh, the word in the sermon today. And they would come to Jesus, they would bow before him, they would receive from him the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. We, we, we pray that you would do that for his glory and yours as well, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.